0: In the name of God, the life-giving, all-loving, and incarnate word, amen. Please be seated. A few weeks ago, Jimmy opened his sermon by saying, sometimes the preacher takes the front door into the gospel, and sometimes the preacher takes the back door into the gospel, and sometimes the preacher takes the side door into the gospel. But sometimes the preacher actually doesn't take any door into the gospel. The preacher just stays out and plays in the front yard for a while, or maybe goes out to explore something in a nearby field. In the early church, theologians used to talk about the two great books. On the one hand, you'd have the book of sacred scripture which bears record to God's love for God's people and how that gets worked out in their overstanding throughout human history. On the other hand, you've got the book of nature. And these church mothers and fathers taught that in all of the created world, in everything that that, that is, including us human creatures, could be glimpsed something of God's goodness, truth, and beauty embedded in our midst. So what I'd like to do this morning is to examine some parts of this book of nature, and particularly in the book and story and text of my own life. I want to tell you why I am a Christian, why I hold the beliefs I do, how I've come to hold the faith I have as a follower of Jesus. And in order to do so, I need to tell you also why I became a priest. And in doing both of those things, I hope to draw out some of the good news embedded in the feast day we celebrate today of all saints and all souls. Some of you may know this, but for anyone who's pursuing a call to the priesthood, it's often a very long, a very prolonged and complex an often frustrating process. If you were to discern a call to the priesthood, the first thing you do would be to go to a priest in your local congregation, express that desire, and if they think you're up for it and maybe have the capacity for ministry, they put together a committee, a discernment committee that you meet with probably about half a dozen times. They assess your sense of call, and then if they think you're up to snuff, they put you forward to the bishop's diocesan committee usually called a discernment a um, commission on ministry and it's another group of people made up from priests and lay ministers throughout the diocese who engage in more conversation to see if they think you're fit for this call and if you pass muster they send you to seminary for three years of theological education and christian formation and over those three years you go back and meet with that commission on ministry multiple times and in every one of these little check-ins and sort of moments of assessment a, a candidate for ministry has to present what is often called a spiritual autobiography and i've got to say that revising this spiritual autobiography over and over again becomes a bit of a frustrating and annoying process for someone who's pursuing a call to ministry but it's also very helpful Because you become quite practiced in identifying those areas over the course of your life story where the Holy Spirit was particularly active, drawing you deeper into relationship with the divine. And every time that I had to revise my spiritual autobiography, which was actually over like a seven and a half year call rather than three years, I took a little longer to sort of bake throughout that process. But every time I revised that autobiography, I connected my sense of call back to a single experience that I had in church in a Sunday morning as a young boy. I was about eight o'clock and I I was about eight years old and we were at a service in our Episcopal church in Houston, Texas as a family. I must have been a little bored and probably had exhausted the supply of snacks and the toys and the coloring books that my mom had smuggled in in her handbag. Because at some point, I found myself looking around at the people around me. And I noticed something very peculiar. All of these older folks, folks, these adults, had their eyes closed. It was mid-morning, so I knew they couldn't be napping, and I nudged my mom, who had her own eyes closed, and said, Mom, what's going on? And she said, Well, Travis, those people are praying. I asked what praying meant, and she explained that praying was a way of talking to God, a way of spending time with God, that if you quieted yourself enough, you could not only say things to God, but you could actually hear God in some way saying things to you. And I remember looking up and seeing the the light pour kaleidoscopically through the stained glass window panes and hearing the song from the choir floating up through that sanctuary space and just feeling peace, just feeling a sense of home, like this is the place I'm meant to be. And around that age, I wasn't the only person who was feeling that way. I had a Sunday school named Allison Weathers who used to remark to my parents about the piety she saw this young William Travis Helms displaying in his Sunday school class, particularly around the little meticulous drawings of the Holy Grail and the Ark of the Covenant that I would make in Sunday school every week. She thought, perhaps this young boy has a call to the ministry. My parents may have felt the same thing until things went south. Because one Sunday morning, Miss Weather started to notice pits of snakes and bullwhips and great rolling stones crashing through the jungle also appearing in my drawings and it became very obvious that I was conflating the stories of the Bible with those of Indiana Jones. And truth be told, I was absolutely obsessed with Indiana at the time. I had a little felt fedora with a leopard print band that I would wear so frequently that my ears wore holes in the brim. I had a bullwhip that I cracked that I bought from a costume shop and one of my mom's purses that I repurposed as sort of a little Indiana Jones satchel. And I had this book, this little diary that I carried around a la Indiana. And though I didn't become a globe-trotting archaeologist and explorer, what's so amazing is if I look back in this diary, there are pictures of stained glass windows, of chalices, of crosses. And it felt almost like even at that early age, the Holy Spirit was planting something deep inside me. This curiosity and a desire to explore God as some great mystery that I couldn't necessarily understand, but I could actually experience in some way through prayer. When I got to seminary, I started thinking about the priesthood as someone who has the charge or the chance of trafficking in transcendence. That sort of became my shorthand for thinking about the priesthood. And thinking that what the priest does is take the everyday things of this world, things like bread and wine and water and oil and two people declaring their love for one another, a baby being presented to be baptized, a person sick upon their bed, and says that each and every one of these things, all these things that are part of the book of nature, somehow show forth a sense of God's love and truth and beauty. They serve as windows to the divine. But of course, to some degree, I think I'm also a Christian priest because of the fact that I was born in a Christian culture. This is a sort of archetype that I followed. And I remember thinking when I was traveling around North Africa after the Peace Corps and being welcomed into different Muslim homes with such hospitality and warmth that if I were born in an Islamic country, I'd probably be an imam. I remember hosting the Jackson Hole Jewish community a couple couple weeks ago and seeing what Josh Clayman did, and thinking, "Gosh, I guess if I were born Jewish, I'd probably be a rabbi." I can remember traveling to India during grad school and thinking, "If I were born in Kerala, I'd probably be swinging a lamp of ghee in front of a statue to Vishnu or Kali in a Hindu temple." I think that ultimately there are probably as many different paths to meaning in this world as there are human beings. And yet, and yet there are very concrete and specific reasons I have for being a Christian. Every Sunday morning, I feel like I say the creed with utter conviction, and I'd never want to presume that that creed has to be true for someone else, but for me it is, and it has a very saving insight. I can remember that when I first went to college, um, I became an English major because I really wanted to write better poetry. And I thought that for someone who wanted to write better poetry in English, it might be helpful to have a little Latin. So I became a classics minor. And I spent all this time reading these different myths and realizing that there's so many similarities amongst the world's myths across cultures and across time. In all of these different traditions, there are creation stories, there are flood narratives, there are even stories about dying and reviving gods, about death and resurrection. In Hinduism and in Greco-Roman mythology, there are stories of gods coming to earth and sort of masquerading as mortals. But Christianity is different. Christianity is the only faith tradition that I understand that teaches that God the creator, the source of all that is, the entire cosmos, this created world, all the plants and animals and landscapes, this God, this God of transcendence, actually became human in order to open up for us a way back to, to the divine. In Jesus Christ, God becomes human and identifies God's self with us in this entire human condition that can feel so weird and bizarre and perplexing at different times. And for me, that's such an immense comfort. When I read the gospel, I see Jesus moving through the world, experiencing all the emotions that we as human beings struggle with. He experiences confusion, trying to figure out what exactly his call in life is. He experiences grief, weeping at the grave of his friend Lazarus. He experiences agony and anxiety in the garden to the point of sweating blood when he's trying to figure out what fulfilling his mission and his devotion to God actually looks like. And especially on the cross, he experiences human despair and abandonment when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when I find myself in the midst of suffering, when I find myself experiencing some little daily devastation or contemplating macro issues, like another shooter who walks into a school or another innocent civilian killed in Gaza or in Israel, I know that I have a God that knows what it is to suffer, that has a heart for human suffering because that God's experienced it. And we, not, we may not always be able to understand the why of suffering, of why these things happen to us as human beings, but I will tell you with utter certainty, there's always a with. God is always here with us in our suffering. I don't believe that God plans for suffering to happen, to teach us something or to further the story along, but God does look at our experience of suffering And take it on as something that can be transformed. One of my favorite theologians is a guy named Christian Wyman, who was a poet born in far west Texas in a town of Snyder, and he was born in an intensely southern Baptist context. And not surprisingly, as many people who are born in hyper conservative religious environments, he pushed back against that, pushed off against that background, and spent most of his adolescence tra- fall, traveling around trying to access experiences of meaning. And he ended up ultimately serving as the editor of Poetry Magazine, which is America's most prestigious poetry journal, for about 10 years. During those 10 years, he was diagnosed with an unpredictable, and an uncurable form of blood cancer. And he starts writing poems and essays that address these questions of suffering and meaning, of where God is in the midst of all of our heartache. And one, that, one of the things that Christian Wyman says in his early essay is that there's a difference between belief and between faith. He says that belief, grammatically speaking, has objects things we believe in, or things we believe that. I believe in God is Trinity. I believe that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. I believe that Christ was raised on the third day. But faith, he says, is something different. Faith is taking on a posture of heart in which we acknowledge that there is way more going on than we can ever understand or comprehend. And we trust that even in the midst of, of our heartache and confusion, God can bring good things into light and bring love into blossom, even when it seems most hopeless. Some of you were with us last Lent when we offered our broken series here to the parish. And the clergy and I talked about how our experiences of personal brokenness met a larger experience of cultural brokenness. And in that series, I told the story of losing my mother, Sally Griffiths Helms, to pancreatic cancer. But I haven't shared this story with you as a congregation from the pulpit. My mother, Sally, was born in 1952, also in far west Texas, in a town called San Angelo. And she was an amazing and radiant human being. She was sort of a mystic who practiced contemplative prayer Every day, but she also snorted when she laughed at movies like Father of the the Bride. She had a PhD in counselor's education and was sort of an academic, but she also loved the Beatles and salt on the rim of her margarita glass. And she lived a life of absolute beauty before dying far too early from pancreatic cancer. She was diagnosed in 2009, right when I'd gotten home from the Peace Corps. We were having lunch together one day in my, the patio of my parents' home in Houston, and I noticed that something was different in her skin tone. And honestly, I thought she was using like a self-tanning lotion, and I said, Mom, I don't know what it is, but you look radiant today. It turned out that she had a little stricture, a small tumor in her bile duct. The bile was backing up into her bloodstream and appearing as jaundice. She complained a few days later of stomach pain and the doctors prescribed a very intense and highly involved um, stomach procedure where they removed various, various portions of her major organs and then a year of radiation and chemo, almost all of the appointments for which I attended before going off to seminary. In my third year in seminary, actually just the day before spring break, when I was planning on flying out here to ski with some of my college buddies with a little extra money my mom had sent me. I got a call from my dad saying, I think you need to come home. Your mom doesn't have much time left. My brother and I flew to Houston. They set up a hospice bed in the home. The priest who sent me to seminary came and administered last rites And around 3 a.m. on March fifteenth, 2013, the ending of it all began beginning. We had a fire in the fireplace in my parents' bedroom, and there were doors open onto that patio where we discovered her jaundice. My mom's breathing became gradually more labored. It started to subside and finally ceased. I was kneeling in front of her, my dad next to me, my brother behind her, And when she stopped breathing, my dad put his hand on the blanket that she was cloaked beneath and said, well, that's it, boys. And I just thought, that can't be it. This can't be it. And as I thought that, her eyes re-centered and they simultaneously widened and focused on the firelight behind me. And then, y'all, a smile flashed across her face absolutely blossomed on her face. And she had a beautiful smile in life, but this was something she had no control over or agency in. And my dad leapt to his feet and cried out, Sally, oh, Sally. And then my brother jumped up and sort of at the same time, almost comically, they said, there is a heaven. And then I jumped up and through tears, we just started hugging and gave each other high fives. And I looked down and it was just the shell of her, but that smile was still there, wide and bright. And it felt in that moment like the veil between this world and whatever waits beyond it was completely ripped away. And I think of that moment each time I try to live into this invitation and this knowledge that there's so much more going on ...that we can even begin to comprehend. Which brings me to All Saints Day. In a couple minutes, we'll approach this altar. And when we do, we receive the bread and the wine in our hands. And what the church teaches is that somehow, in some mystical way... ...Jesus is actually really present in that bread and wine. We take God's body into our bodies so we can go and be God's body in the world... But right before communion, we're going to sing a hymn together. A hymn from the book of the prophet Isaiah. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of heaven and earth. Heaven and earth are full of your glory, Hosanna in the highest. And the priest will introduce this hymn by saying, with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven, we forever sing this hymn to proclaim the glory of your name. And what the church teaches And what I believe, or want to believe, is that mysteriously and mystically, in some way, at this altar, all of the saints are somehow also present. All the people we love and see no longer, all these faithful, clothed in light, lifting their voices in song beside ours, the Virgin Mary and Mary Magdalene, St. Thomas and St. John and John Lennon and John Milton and David Bowie and Anne Frame and Doug Ayers and Cliff Martin and Sally Griffiths Helms and all the people we love standing here beside us participating in this heavenly feast. Y'all, the veil is so very thin. And that's our invitation each and every day to stay open to that possibility that there's more going on than we can ever wrap our heads and hearts around. And What I want to do this morning to end is to say a poem for you by Christian Wyman. A poem that's constellated so many of these themes for me in a deeply meaningful way and it's actually printed on the back of your order of service. And there's also a little QR code if you want to listen to an interview with Wyman and go a little deeper. But when I, say this, when I say this poem, I want you to picture a man in a cancer bed. A man who's just had a bone marrow transplant and is experiencing as much pain as he is despair. And what Christian Wyman says about being in that place where your mortality becomes so pressing and present is that the last thing he wanted was some airy mysticism. In his words, when death sniffs you, what he wanted most passionately was to feel even more in this world. He craved palms and experiences of God and life that restored him to this world more completely. And this is his invitation to learn to open our eyes to the mystery at work in the world around us, to read that book of nature a little bit more clearly. So whether you close your eyes or read along, imagine this, a man in his hospital bed who looks out the window one day and sees a tree. An ordinary tree, and yet all of a sudden it seems that its leaves are moving in a miraculous and inexplicable way. He presses his face to the window pane, P-A-N-E, but also to the pane, P-I-N, that's ghosting it. And sees these leaves gather up miraculously and then fly off into the heavens. And he realizes that these leaves had been birds nesting in the tree. But something about the way that he experiences this surprise within the created world restores him to joy again. So may this poem also be an invitation to you to continue to open your eyes to the mysterious way in which God is always already seeking to break love and beauty and truth more fully open in our midst. From a Window Incurable and unbelieving, in any truth but the truth of grieving, I saw a tree inside a tree rise kaleidoscopically, as if its leaves were livelier ghosts. I pressed my face as close to the pain as I could get to watch that fitful, fluent spirit that seemed a single being undesigned or countless beings of one mind haul its strange cohesion beyond the limits of my vision over the house heavenwards. Of course I knew those leaves were birds. Of course I knew that old tree stood exactly as it had and would. but why should it seem fuller now? And though a man's mind might endow even a tree with more excess of life than to which the world seems witness, that life is not the life of men. And that is where the joy came in. Amen.